0: Let's go ahead and get started. Um, Jen asked one question about the wording of the first homework problem. Asked you to calculate the frequency difference between the, what's written is the Balmer alpha line in hydrogen and in deuterium. But you should just read that as the Balmer. You should read that as the frequency difference between the Balmer lines of hydrogen and deuterium. If you didn't catch an inconsistency with that question, then don't worry about the correction. If you saw that and asked what was going on, then uh, what I said was not exactly consistent. so Neil? Did you respond to Jennifer's correction about all the n, and n squared? Yeah, they should be n squared. Oh, okay. uh, I saw 1. I, I looked on the one slide that she pointed out and made that correction. I don't know if there were other slides as well. The following slide? Actually, yeah, you mentioned that. Um, Yeah. So, just to remind you where we left off last time, we talked about the different quantum numbers for a molecular system. We started by looking at the Bohr model of hydrogen and then um, generalizing that or, or leaving that behind and talking about the quantum model of hydrogen And then relating that quantum picture to the Bohr model And we had a couple different quantum numbers Really there's one quantum number That we talked about um, For hydrogen which was The uh, the Principal quantum number n And we said the energy was proportional to n squared Which is where that error In the notes came from The frequency then should be proportional to n squared The wavelength should be inversely proportional To n squared Um When we generalize this to larger atoms or molecules that have more than just a single electron that we need to consider, then we have more representations for the system. We have a whole array of quantum numbers to keep track of the system. Instead of just talking about the angular momentum of an orbiting electron, we can talk about the total angular momentum of the orbitals. So if you have multiple electrons, The sum of all their angular momentum is represented by capital J. So, again, the capital letters are used when there's more than one particle that's being added up to uh, give some quantity. The nuclear spin is the sum of all the spin of the nucleons and was given by the capital letter I. And there's a magnetic. There's there's a component of the nuclear spin and there's also a component of the angular momentum that can be projected onto uh, the z-axis or any arbitrary axis you choose and that itself is quantized. So I think we already talked about uh, M sub L as the projection of the orbital angular momentum on the z-axis. So we have M sub I as a component of the spin angular momentum onto the z-axis. And another parameter that we're going to deal with a lot today is V, which is a vibrational quantum number for a bond. So if you have a bond, that means you have a molecule, and the interatomic separation of that molecule can be vibrating. So we use the lowercase v, that's just the notation that's used. It necessarily involves more than a single particle, because it's a bond between two particles, but uh, the lowercase v is what's used, I'm not sure why that is. And we related this to the carbon dioxide spectrum. Carbon dioxide is a linear molecule. So we have a simple one-dimensional system, or at least in equilibrium we do. But we can think about how this can be disturbed from equilibrium, or I shouldn't say equilibrium, I really should say at absolute zero temperature where there's no energy in the system, in the ground state, we have a linear system. It can be disturbed from that in a number of ways. One is the whole system can rotate. This system is not rotationally symmetric, so you can distinguish between this right now and if the whole thing rotates. That's not the case for the hydrogen atom. As a result, there can be energy stored in the rotation of this system. That energy is given here. It depends on the total angular momentum quantum number j and it's roughly proportional to j squared you can see it, it sort of goes like j squared only it's not exactly j squared, it's j times j plus 1 and that comes from the fact that if you took those uh, solutions to the Schrodinger equation that had orbital momentum not equal to 0 and you evaluated the Hamiltonian you would get the energy, and the energy would go like j times j plus 1 I'm not interested in actually doing that. I'm just happy to quote the result. We'll use this result, but that's where it comes from. And so it goes like j times j plus 1. Um, so j is the amount of angular momentum measured in units of h-bar. So this looks like an angular momentum squared. We have j times h-bar and j plus 1 times h-bar. So that's an angular momentum squared. And we're dividing by twice the moment of inertia. So angular momentum squared divided by twice the inertia is an energy. If you write the angular momentum, and I think we did this last time, if you wrote the angular momentum as I omega for a rigid rotor, and then you were to write um, the energy of a rigid rotor as one-half I omega squared, you could write this as 1 half i squared omega squared over i and now this term in the numerator is the angular momentum squared, which is what's in the numerator up here have 2i in the denominator so you can see this is just an energy and it's really not that different than the energy of a rigid rotor that you would calculate in uh, an introductory classical mechanics class it's just written in a slightly different way Now, likewise, you can have not rotation, but stretching or bending of the bond. And that can store energy as well. So if we think of the bond between these atoms as like springs that are in some equilibrium distance when the system has no internal vibrational energy, then we can shake the system in a number of ways. So there's three modes for this molecule that you can stretch it in. This one here shows an asymmetric stretching, which means, let's see, these two outside oxygen atoms are being, uh, let's see, they're moving in one direction. Let's say they move to the left, and this center carbon is moving to the right. So the outer atoms are vibrating in one direction, the inner atom is vibrating out of phase. So it's asymmetric. So one arm, is get one bond is getting shorter when the other one's getting longer and vice versa. You can have symmetric stretching. Okay, so that's imagine the carbon fixed and the oxygen both moving away from it and then in. So they're changing the overall length of the molecule as both bonds get longer or shorter together. And then you can have a bending which essentially, if you imagine the oxygen's fixed you can imagine shaking the carbon back and forth, forth, transverse to that plane and that's another mode of vibration so each of those if you imagine these as masses connected by springs, you can imagine each one of those would have a different resonant frequency Um, therefore when we treat these quantum mechanically we'll find that each one has a different energy associated with that type of of, uh, vibration Or alternatively, we can think of the spring constant connecting these masses as different depending on whether or the effective spring constant seen by the system displaced from equilibrium is depending on whether it's displaced in this asymmetric fashion, whether it's displaced in this bending fashion or whether it's displaced symmetrically. Okay, So the energy in a vibrating system or in a uh, a simple harmonic oscillator looks like um, one-half K a squared. Let's see, this is for rotation. So for vibration, for a simple harmonic oscillator, we'd say the energy stored in the spring of a simple harmonic oscillator stretched out to its maximum amplitude would be 1 half times the spring constant times that amplitude squared. It just comes from the energy stored in a spring is 1 half k times its displacement squared. So that's the energy at any point in time. If the spring is stretched out and it's released, it gets converted into kinetic energy and then back, but that's the total energy. Okay, so. quantum mechanically, we can say that the energy looks like h-bar omega, that's a single quanta of energy, and omega then is the natural frequency of the vibration. Well, omega, the natural frequency of a simple harmonic oscillator for a mass on a spring, is square root of the spring constant divided by the mass. And here, since we're dealing with a system of multiple springs, essentially, we're using not just the mass of any one object, but we're using the reduced mass of the system, mu. So we replace m with mu. And we can write the energy of vibration as h-bar squared of k over mu. And that's this term over here. And we say the ground state energy is when it has one half of that quantity. And for every additional, um, every additional quanta of energy stored in vibration, the energy increases by that amount. Okay, so this isn't a formal proof of that expression, it's just a motivation for the form of it. Now, if you plug in the values for a carbon dioxide molecule, the moment of inertia, for instance, is just you take a rotation about the center of the carbon atom, and you look up the bond length in a table. You look up the mass of the oxygen in the periodic table, and you do treat this as a rotor with basically a barbell with two masses at the end then each one has a moment of inertia, m r squared. You add them up, plug it in here, plug in the value of h bar squared, and you look at the lowest, I guess the value of h squared over 2i. You get 0.78 wave numbers. Remember one wave number was about um, a quarter of an, was about an angstrom, about a quarter of an angstrom in the visible spectrum. Okay, so this energy shift due to a quanta of rotation would shift a spectral line, for instance, by about a part per thousand for an optical transition. So it's a relatively small amount of energy stored per quanta of rotation. Likewise for the vibrational energy, we use different values of the spring constant for the different modes of stretching. Um, And when you evaluate what the uh, energy per quanta is, it's about a thousand times higher than you have for rotation depending on which mode you have. So the vibrational modes store much more energy than a rotational mode. That's why transitions that are purely rotational give off spectral lines that are in the far infrared. Transitions which are primarily vibrational give off lines that are in the, the near infrared much higher energy lines. And then the transitions which involve primarily the principal quantum number changing give off lines that are basically in the visible or near-infrared. And that's where we ended up last time. So any questions up till here? Let's um, put this into practice. There's an exercise that I'd like to do, and we'll take... um, We'll take time to do this together on the board. But let's say you recorded a spectrum, or you were given a spectrum that came from a a molecule. We'll consider hydrochloric acid, or I guess HCl. This is probably a uh, spectrum taken from a a gaseous form of the, the molecule. And we don't have any units on the vertical axis but we have the horizontal axis calibrated in terms of frequency and we basically want to understand everything we can about the system from this data. Okay, So things that we can learn are, well first thing we can do is we can try to explain the shape of the spectrum in terms of what we know already. We can try to use the spectrum to determine the force constant between the molecular bond, or of the molecular bond between the uh, individual atoms, and we can also determine the bond length. So, how far is the hydrogen from the chlorine? So, these were all parameters that I said if you knew, you could calculate the energy. And here we're basically being told the energy, and we're going to have to work backwards and calculate those parameters. Okay, so let's look at this this spectrum. Uh, The first thing you might notice, or one thing that's kind of curious, so it's basically a series of regularly spaced lines. What's going on in the center? It looks like there's a missing line if you sort of interpolate the spacing it looks like there should be a line right there if this spacing is uniform and it continued. Um, So we see that. The shape, I mean it almost appears like it's sort of a Gaussian distribution or something like that, but again not quite. It's actually decreasing here in the center and has a peak over here a few spectral lines away from the center. And then there's these, every line is essentially two closely spaced lines. If you look carefully, you can resolve two lines every place where there is a peak. So we want to explain all of that. So in order to do this and keep track of things, there's some terminology that we can introduce. The P, Q, and R branches of the spectrum... So when you look at that picture I can point to certain parts of the spectrum and say this is the P branch this is the Q, this is the R branch So a P branch of the spectrum is considered one where the angular momentum decreases during the transition the Q branch has the angular momentum staying the same and the R branch has the angular momentum increasing So if we use that notation and we also use the notation where The quantum numbers we label with a double prime in the ground state and a prime in the excited state then that will allow us to uh, describe this in a manner that's consistent with what's uh, frequently done in the literature okay so what's causing these spectral lines what what are candidates So let's start with the very first quantum number that we introduced, which was the principal quantum number n, right, the orbital level. So when you see a spectral line, or when we introduced spectral lines, it was because of an, a transition from a higher state energy level of the electron to a lower state. Um, is this spectrum likely to be because of those types of transitions? Why not? It's not, well. I don't know. It depends on how you define discrete. Well, like, um, doesn't have a, a band width, so that's really narrow, I guess. OK, well, that we see this splitting, but in uh, the homework problem, the first homework problem, you're asked to calculate the, the splitting due to an electron transition between, in hydrogen and in deuterium. And that will manifest itself as a splitting, not unlike that. So, there's another reason why we can say this is not an electronic transition. Frequency. frequency. Yeah, so what would be a typical frequency for uh, visible light? Visible light, which would be like 10 to the 14 or 15 hertz, and this is about a factor of 100 below that. Okay, so the energy is too low. The frequency is too low, that means the energy is too low. This is probably not a transition between electronic orbitals. It could be. I mean, you could have two very closely spaced electronic orbitals that are in the very high excited states, and so their, um, their energy levels are pretty close together. But assuming these are all transitions around some ground state, it's probably not an electron transition. So is this an atom or a molecule? Molecule, right? So, we can also consider vibration, rotation, as two degrees of freedom. Okay. So it could be vibrate like a combination of vibration and rotation. In fact, we said before that a transition was only allowed if delta J was not equal to zero. What that means is you're not going to have transitions just between two different vibrational states. Because a transition between two different vibrational states would change the vibration quantum number but wouldn't change the angular momentum quantum number, meaning the photon, which has angular momentum, needs to either carry it away or add it to the system. And so you need to have a change in the angular momentum from the upper to lower state, and the way that manifests itself in a molecule is rotation. Okay, So it's probably some combination of vibration and rotation. And in fact, you'll often see the term row vibrational where it just because these two, uh, these two effects go together when producing spectra, People talk about this as like the row vibrational spectrum. It's a combination of rotation and vibration going into the spectrum. Okay, so let's see if we can draw what the energy levels for the system might look like. So recall that for vibration, well, so we've got it right here. Um, So here's an expression for the energy of a vibrating bond with vibrational quantum number v and here's the energy of a rotational bond with rotational quantum number j or angular momentum quantum number j so we said that this energy is bigger than that energy or this the change in energy is increment v is much greater than the change in energy here is increment j so if we drew an energy level diagram where we put energy on the vertical axis nothing on the horizontal axis it's just uh, labeling the different energies then I could draw let's say a ground state here that corresponds to V equals 0 and J equals 0 and I said I was going to use double primes to indicate the ground state and then the next energy level if I'm only considering vibration and rotation the next energy level is going to be what? what values for v and j? yeah it's going to be one increment in angular momentum so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to call this v double prime and j double prime. And then I'm going to increment the angular momentum 1 unit and draw that energy level. And So if I plug in a 1 here, I go from this quantity this factor being 0 to this factor being 2. And now when I plug in j equals 2 I get Three times two, which is six. So it goes zero, two, six. When I plug in three, I get twelve. So I have a. These aren't regularly spaced, they're increasing. Okay, so as the value of J, the to- total angular momentum increases this uh, spectrum has values that get further and further apart. Okay, So this will continue on for a ways. I'm not going to draw, I'm not going to attempt to draw. Where does the B change Okay, so right now these all involve the same vibrational energy and we're looking at small changes in the energy which are due to rotation. As soon as V double prime changes, that energy level jump, we said is about 10 to 100 times greater than the J. So way up there, there's gonna be the next, the next level. So I'll draw it in green to just more clearly indicate to our eye that this is an excited vibrational state. So the vibrational quantum number is going to be one greater than that of the ground state. Well, there will be energy levels for J equals zero. But can an atom or a, can a molecule in this energy state decay to the, the ground state? No, it can't because it's not an allowed transition. So it can't by emitting a single photon. So it's an improbable transition. Um, But there is an energy state there. Could it decay, for example, to the J equals one state? It could. So it's still an important transition to consider. It will give rise to some spectral lines. Now, measuring from this state, we're going to have the same pattern of lines as we increase J. So as we go to... uh, I'm gonna call it J prime equals J double prime. J prime equals J double prime plus one. Okay and remember this isn't a scale, right? So the difference between these red and green lines is is much greater than I can show on this scale. So now let's draw all the transitions not all but for at least the first three energy levels above the ground state and above the first vibrationally excited state that are going to occur and those will give rise to most of these lines. Okay so let's start with an, let's say you've got an atom in this state it can We said it couldn't decay to this ground state because that was forbidden. It can decay to this j plus 1 state, though. And so we're actually going to consider transitions where delta j has a magnitude of 1. Okay, So that has... a value of delta J, which equals 1. So that transition corresponds to a molecule that lost a quantum of vibrational energy, but gained a quantum of rotational energy. It corresponds to Delta V equals minus 1. Delta J equals plus 1. And then, likewise, I could go up to the... Consider a molecule in this uh, J prime equals J double prime plus 1 state. And it can decay it can't decay into this level but it can decay into either of the other two so you can have a delta j equals plus one transition yeah thanks Um, or you can have a delta j equals minus one And I'm going to draw that, let's see, let me draw it on the right here for reasons we'll see later. Okay, so those are the two transitions that can occur from this level with plus or minus 1 change in angular momentum. Now let's consider a molecule on this level. It can have a delta J of plus 1 and go from the second rotational state to the third rotational state when it decays. Or I can go from the second to the first, which I'll draw over here. And if I had drawn more energy levels I could draw more transitions and the pattern basically repeats for every upper state it can decay into two different lower states by giving off a photon of one unit of angular momentum. Charlotte? Those would correspond to a single photon transition so they're the most likely. Okay, so now we said uh, that the P branch of the spectrum has delta J equals minus 1 so we'll call these P transitions these then were R transitions and then Q transitions were one where delta J equals 0 but we said those weren't allowed so I don't have that on my uh, diagram so there are no Q transitions So if we look at transitions, say, that, that end up in this quantum state right here, the j double prime plus one, we have an, a p transition that comes from here, and we have an r transition that comes from here. So which of those is more energetic? The p. All right, so the p transitions are more energetic. These spectral lines over here will all be p transitions. And these will all be our transitions. Do I have it the other way around in the notes? Okay, yeah, my notes are right. My logic right now is wrong. Let me not consider transitions terminating in this state. Let me consider transitions starting in this state. The ones with J equals minus 1 have a greater energy than the states with J equals plus 1. Well, again, that says the P transitions. In your notes, you did like you ah, you're right. This is an emission spectrum, and I didn't actually say whether this—that—that that would spectrum. I see it with given the mixture. Okay. Well, here's the problem: is that this doesn't say whether this is an absorption spectrum or an emission spectrum. Okay. So. If you reverse the direction of all these lines, then you also reverse the sign of all these things. And so, let me do that to be consistent with the notes. Sorry for doing that differently. So that's giving me my R transitions are higher energy than the P transitions. Okay. So is it done with like absorption? Well, let's see. Um, you recall when we were talking about um, the Einstein coefficients for spontaneous emission we said that the coefficient for spontaneous emission scaled like the frequency cubed and as a result at very high frequencies there was very rapid uh, spontaneous emission and that made it hard to make an x-ray laser. It's hard to get a good population inversion. And at low frequencies, the spontaneous emission then was very low, which made it difficult to do emission spectroscopy. Because you pump a system into an upper state and it doesn't rapidly decay. So it's hard to do to observe the emission. That's why, and we said last time that that's why infrared and mid-infrared spectra are typically done in absorption. So we're dealing with molecules. Molecules primarily have uh, spectra dominated by vibration and rotation, which we argued are uh, infrared. So this would more likely be done in absorption. So, like, wouldn't the data that you get be the of that data? Wouldn't you have all the light and you have black spots? Well, I have no idea. What, I mean, you need to know what that. Plot means. That's why I yeah. would argue that would be emission because it has peaks in its driving it. Well you're assuming what's being measured is the light power in a detector, but that could be the um, it could be the power of light reflected back from a sample. It could be the uh, just plotted as the change in power. I sure. Yeah, I, I agree there's some logic to what you're saying, but um, Yeah, unfortunately, this problem's not well enough defined to say absolutely. Okay, so let's calculate what those spectra should look like. Let me write the uh, energy of a system with quantum numbers V and J as being the sum of its vibrational energy, I'm just going to write the natural frequency is omega naught for the moment rather than k over mu. And it's rotational energy. I'll write that up there. That lets me get rid of this. I can work out a little bit of math. I can calculate what the energy change is for the R branch and the P branch. Or the, yeah. okay, so for the R branch of the spectrum, I have delta J increasing and I have delta V increasing. I have v is positive, V is increasing and J is increasing. So the energy of the excited the energy the yeah, let me start with the energy of the ground state is V double prime plus one half h bar omega naught plus j double prime j double prime plus one for two i h bar squared. And I'll do the same thing for the upper state. Here are the vibrational quantum number has increased by one so I'm going to write it in terms of the lower state vibrational quantum number and the angular momentum quantum number has also increased by one look at the change in energy. Yep. From the higher state to the lower state. So this minus this. So the way I've written it using the same quantum number in both notations, that quantum number cancels out. The one-halves here cancel out, and I get one one vibrational quanta of energy due to the the change in the quantum number for vibration, and then over here, I have a slightly more complicated expression, both terms have a j double prime plus 1 in them, and then one term, I have a j double prime plus 2 minus a j double prime, that's times h bar squared over 2i. The J's cancel here at two. Let's see, I'll multiply that two through by this, and I'll write that in terms of a couple constants. and a term which depends on J double prime my starting rotational quantum number I'll do the same thing now for the P branch and if you're taking notes here, you can go ahead and just do the math on your own. You can check if it matches what I come up with. Well, it means the, the, start, the starting state. Yeah. yeah, you know I should have... I should have been more precise. I should have thought before I said spoke. J double prime will be our starting state, our lower energy state. and J prime, if the double prime will be the lower state, the prime will be the upper state. J prime minus 1 minus j prime plus 1, that minus 2? The j double primes cancel minus 1, minus 1 is minus 2 and that 2 I meant to cancel out like that. Does that look okay? Okay, so we have two very similar expressions for the energy transitions corresponding to the R branch and those for the P branch they both start with some base energy transition corresponding to a vibrational quantum level change yes J equals 0 is still well for transition this would be the lower state would be J double prime Yes, And these levels up here would be J double prime, or J single prime. So every transition starts on a level with quantum number V double prime, J double prime, and ends on a level with quantum number V prime, J prime. A j minus 1 here came from the fact that so this is my expression for the energy level and I'm plugging in for the upper state the orbital quantum number j double prime, the orbital angular momentum quantum number j double prime which was the ground state minus 1 so I'm saying that if j double prime is the initial orbital angular momentum in that transition to a higher energy level in a p branch that angular momentum decreases by one so let me see if I can write that out okay This is basically by definition. We're categorizing all transitions where the upper state rotational quantum number gets increased by one as an R-branch transition. And we're plugging in this value of the quantum number for J in the upper state. And we're categorizing all transitions where the the orbital angular momentum quantum number decreases by one as a P branch transition, and we're plugging in this number for J. Yeah, Kiri? are we supposed to think of our transitions on a photon in one direction, a P transition in the upper direction? No. So how do you find the angular momentum to be plus 1 Well, a photon can have angular momentum of plus 1 unit h-bar. And that can be in either direction. So the, the, the absolute value of angular momentum is H-bar, right? Yeah, it can it's, it's spin one particle. It can be plus one or minus one. No, it doesn't have anything to do with the propagation direction of the photon? OK, so two different expressions. They have some similarities, they both have an energy level difference that primarily is due to this term here which is the vibrational change in energy and then they both have a term which depends on their initial angular momentum state which depends on J double prime and for the R branch transitions the higher you start in uh, rotational energy the greater the energy of the transition whereas for the P branch the higher you start in J, the smaller the energy of the transition, okay? And so what that means is if we start from J equals zero, we can have an R transition we don't have a P transition when you start from J equals 0 because you'd have to go to a state with J equals minus 1. We only, J is a positive integer. Okay, So there's a value for delta E of R. There's not one for delta E of P. But then, starting with J double prime equals 1, 2, 3, 4, and counting upwards, these energy levels keep increasing above this sort of mean energy to vibration and these energy levels keep decreasing below that mean energy okay so that mean energy is somewhere over here and the energy levels that are above this seem to be evenly spaced and that spacing should be h-bar squared over i So you can use that to calculate, for example, the bond length, the moment of inertia, if you know the mass of the molecule, or the atoms in the molecule, you can calculate the moment of inertia based on their separation. Okay, so that explains the two branches, and the reason there's nothing in the middle is this is the mean energy for the transition that corresponds to a, vibrational, a change in the vibrational quantum number but we said that was a forbidden transition going from changing just the vibrational quantum state so going from j equals 0 to j equals 0 is forbidden or j equals 1 to j equals 1 is forbidden so there's no spectral line there so that explains the missing spectral line uh, what about the shape? It grows and then decreases. Mm -hmm. It is. It's, It's because of the probability of a transition occurring. So let's start with the easy part. Why would the probability of having a transition, an absorption occur, decrease as you go to higher and higher values of J double prime? What's that? Yeah, why are they less probable? Higher energy, right. So just uh, in thermal equilibrium, most of the energy is going to be in the ground state and there's an exponential decay. The Boltzmann distribution says the higher energy states are going to have less population. So there's going to be less and less molecules in these higher J-value states to cause absorption. So that's why it decays. Um, But that also would say there's the highest probability of finding a state in this j equals 0. And so you expect the, we'll call this the R1 transition right here to be the, the dominant line, and it's not. Bo, do you have any thoughts on that? well it's it, it, no it doesn't it involves something other than v and j another another quantum number so if we go back a step the expectation value of finding a, a particle in a particular energy state depends on that energy level and looks like um, e to the minus that energy over kT. right? And you'd have to normalize this by the probability of finding it in all energy levels. So, the partition function gives us that. Well, we're considering, if you just consider um, each of these states at higher and higher energy levels then this expression tells us that they should be less and less populated as you go to higher energy. However what we mean by a state, we need to clarify that a little bit a state or an energy level um, that we plug into that equation means a unique value of quantum numbers. Okay, So certainly these different energy levels have different values of the quantum number j or the quantum number v but there's other quantum numbers which we're not taking into account here for example, um, m sub l is the projection of the angular momentum onto the z axis okay, so the quantum number j tells us how much angular momentum we have m sub l tells us how much of that is projected onto the z axis Well that doesn't if you're not in an external magnetic field, that doesn't affect your energy at all. But if you have no angular momentum, there's only one possible value for M sub L. Zero. Right? If there's no angular momentum, the projection under the z-axis is zero. But if your angular momentum has one unit of length, it can point up, down, or think of it horizontally. You can have plus one, zero, or minus one. So Here M sub L has to be 0. Here M sub L is minus 1, 0, or plus 1. For J equals 2, it can be minus 2, minus 1, 0, 1, or 2. And so it goes from minus J to plus J. So really what we have here is we have one state here. We have three states here, which are all degenerate. They all have the same energy, so on this diagram they get drawn as a single line, but they're really three states. So the probability of finding the system in this state if you don't care about which of the different values of M sub L is going to be three times that given by that Boltzmann expression. And likewise the probability of finding it here is five times larger. And so there's competing things. As you go to higher energy levels due to vibration, due to the different higher rotational states, you get greater and greater degeneracy, but you get lower and lower population per level due to the Boltzmann distribution. Okay, so we can write the probability of finding the state, the system with a particular energy level corresponding to a given rotational quantum number as being the degeneracy of that level 2j double prime plus 1, that accounts for how many values from minus j to plus j you have, how many integer values That's the degeneracy and that's the Boltzmann distribution we have the energy of that level divided by kt okay so Qualitatively, that tells you why um, you would expect there to be some increase as you get to higher values of, of j and also why you'd expect to have a decrease as you get to really high values of j so you can, for example, differentiate this with respect to j double prime and set it equal to zero to find what value of j double prime gives you the maximum Okay, and at room temperature. Save you the math here. At room temperature. When you evaluate that, you get J double prime equals 2.7, which is sort of what we see here. At the peak is between the one two. It's about at the third line away from the center. It's J double prime equals three, which matches with our with our optimization. We've almost completely explained the shape of the spectrum. We've got the increasing and decreasing. We've got the lack of a central line. And then we've got the spacing of the lines. Uh, What about the double peaks? What's that? Uh, There is no external field here. Yeah, I, I, I really didn't um, point this out on the initial slide so you may have missed it but this, this gas was a mix of two different isotopes of chlorine and because they have different masses they're going to have um, different values of omega naught as well as different values of the moment of inertia so you get a slight, slight separation and the ratio of the height of those peaks we don't know what the vertical axis is we don't know if it's a linear or logarithmic scale so it's hard to say but the ratio of the height of those peaks should correspond to the ratio of these isotopes it should be, it should be 3 to 1 if you had an equal ratio, a one-to-one mix you should get equal height peaks um, but the separation so the separation of these double peaks is a function of how much mass difference there is between the two isotopes and then the height difference between the peaks corresponds to the difference in abundance of the two, two species Okay, you can In in the homework, you basically work that out for the hydrogen-deuterium system. Okay, so let's find the force constant for the HCl bond. So the force constant is related to this omega. The natural frequency is square root of k over mu. Mu is just the reduced mass. We have a two-mass system, so we can calculate that mu of HCl is mass of hydrogen plus mass of chlorine at times divided by their sum. So we can look these values up. And if we know what frequency these vibrational transitions correspond to and we've calculated mu we can find k, the spring constant for the bond which is what we're asked to do Okay, so a pure vibrational transition where delta v equals 1 but has no rotational change would correspond to a frequency at omega naught, square root of k over mu, or a linear frequency instead of an angular frequency of that over 2 pi. The problem is, we don't actually have a pure, vibrational tran- uh, a pure vibrational line anywhere here. There's always this additional energy due to rotation. Where would a, if we did have a line, where would it be to be pure vibration? It would be the gap in the middle. And so we can estimate where that would be by taking the average of the lines above and below it. Okay, so you, know, you can read off the best of your ability on this scale, what those values are, take the average, plug it in for nu, the frequency of that transition. Mu, we can use that expression, we can solve for k. I should uh, point out what assumption we're making, and it's stated there. This assumption is treating the molecule as a rigid rotor. Rigid meaning as it increases its speed, it doesn't change its shape. And that's not actually true. As it rotates faster and faster, the bond stretches, which is what you'd expect. Um, The centrifugal force needs to be greater to pull them in so the bond has to stretch out. And you can see that in the math, that as the... uh, For a state in the R branch, where the angular momentum is increasing, there's a little bit of additional energy, and that little bit of additional energy comes from the fact that as the rotation speeds up, the length of the bond gets greater. And so we're essentially neglecting this term. And if we neglect that term, then h bar omega is the mean value between the r transitions and the p transitions. This term provides a slight shift away from that. You don't need to make that assumption. Um, You could include it. It's a small effect. So we'll read off that center frequency is 8.66 times 10 to the 13 hertz. Here we calculate the reduced mass for HCl. We just do this in terms of AMU. We can look up the mass just in in a periodic table, write it in terms of AMU, and we get the mass there in terms of AMU. We solve for K, we plug in the numbers, and we get 481 newtons per meter. Do you want average Cl a That's a good question. This looks like the 35 mass number isotope. So if you look here if you just take the separation of the peaks of the higher more abundant isotope you can just use the mass of that isotope there. That's assuming that you can resolve the two different peaks. If they're they're within a line width of each other and you can't resolve the two different, you have to do some averaging to be a little more precise. Okay, so what about the bond length? Okay, so to understand the bond length, we're going to want to determine this moment of inertia. This moment of inertia appears in both expressions on the term that corresponds to the increase in energy with increasing j double prime. So that means the separation of the spectral lines And Here we zoomed in um, I don't think this is the picture I wanted to show there the separation of adjacent spectral lines corresponds to this energy they're adjacent then, uh, and it's starting well, they're adjacent it's h squared over i you can solve for i you can use our reduced mass and say the moment of inertia is the mass times radius squared Yeah, I guess what I'm doing here is I'm taking the difference of these peaks. Instead of taking the average, I'm taking the difference and relating that to 2 h-bar squ- squared over i instead of taking what I was just suggesting was to take two other adjacent peaks and call it h squared over two h-bar squared over 2. h-bar squared over i. So we're just averaging over two lines instead of one. Um, right, so we solve for R. We find it's 1.3 angstroms. So that seems reasonable. An angstrom is about the size of an atom, right? And that's the rule of thumb. So they're about an atomic radii away from each other. So, I mean, this is in practice how you can use some of the stuff that we're learning to relate observations to some of these more uh, fundamental properties of the material you're looking at. Um, so that the quantum mechanics is not just, um, it's not entirely abstract, it's not something that doesn't come into practice. Uh, it governs the shape of the spectrum and the shape of the spectrum is what we observe and it tells us about the things that we're, we're measuring. Okay, so you'll have a chance to do this in the next homework. You're going to do this with a different uh, molecule. Okay, so um, this completes our study of the uh, atom, if you will So we saw different solutions to Schrodinger's equation Required the uh, energy levels be discrete that The functions had discrete solutions um, The parameters that, that quantized those were the um, different, different quantum numbers of the system And for molecules that had many quantum levels, there were more quantum numbers to deal with. Um, And we saw today how we can address the relationship between the energy of those different quantum numbers and some of the observed properties, like like the uh, absorption spectrum. So I will see you on...